Hello and welcome to the All In My Head podcast. We're glad you decided to give this podcast a listen. We're a group of teens that are making a podcast for youth by youth. We will counter stereotypes around mental health in the teen, BIPOC, and LGBTQ plus community and talk about things you might find a little uncomfortable. It's, it's real teens, real talk. Hello, welcome to the All In My Head podcast. Today we will be talking about abortion rights here in the U.S. I have a Planned Parenthood teen council member, as well as their supervisor here to talk with us about how abortion is being impacted across the United States. Raymond, would you mind introducing yourself? Hello, my name is Raymond. I use he him pronouns and I am a senior at Tiger High School. I've been a member of teen council since my sophomore year and they actually were guests in my Health One class freshman year. So I've known about Teen Council for just about four years now, and I've been involved for three. Liliana, would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, hi, my name is Liliana. I'm the Community Education and Outreach Coordinator for Planned Parenthood Columbia Willamette. I mainly work in Central Oregon out of our Bend office, but I'm part of Teen Council as part of our entire region and affiliate and supporting students that are in the Teen Council program in the Portland metro area, including Beaverton, Tigard, and in Salem and Woodburn areas. And I've been working with Planned Parenthood for the last 15 years and the last six years here in Oregon at Columbia Willamette. I identify as queer and Latinx, and so I also identify as uh, genderqueer or gender expansive, and so my pronouns are yewat or ye, which is a short version of yewat, and that identity marker also includes uh, my indigenous heritage because it is a pronoun in the Nahuatl language, um, which is part of the indigenous language from the region that my peoples are indigenous to. Okay, my name is Lauren. I use she, her pronouns, and I identify as a straight white female. Um, We're just going to hop straight into the questions here. Raymond, if you wouldn't mind, could you please talk about what an abortion is? Sure. So put simply, an abortion is the willing ending of a human pregnancy before birth and there are many different methods that can happen the simplest is an abortion pill that's for if you catch it early enough otherwise it is a procedure that has to be done at an abortion clinic could you please talk about how abortions affected in lgbtq plus communities i've known there's been quite a big dispute about this in the past Liliana, feel free to pop in on this question if you have anything more to add throughout the interview as well. So I'm not a member of the LGBTQ plus community myself, but I know many who are. And just speaking generally, I know that it can be really hard when your experiences or your identity is not considered to be the norm, especially around health topics, um, getting the proper health you need is one thing, and it's hard enough already, but then putting onto that as well, 
just struggling to be identified and properly, you know, recognized as how you really are can add an entirely different layer to it that can make it much more difficult in many cases. Liliana, do you have anything more to add to that? So abortion access, the way that 2S LGBTQIA plus identities are affected by the whole conversation, um, it's very cisgender centric or cis sexist in that many times when people talk about abortion, it's um, very much a women's issue and I'm putting quotes around women's. And so when we don't recognize that people of any identity that has a uterus and who can find themselves pregnant or become pregnant, they're just completely erased from the conversation. And so not only is that erasure something that impacts the 2S LGBTQIA plus community, it's an additional barrier because of other experiences that 2S LGBTQIA plus folks have in accessing healthcare. And so when people go to access services, um, if their identities are not reflected on paperwork, if their experiences and identities aren't uh, respected or acknowledged by the staff, it can make it really uncomfortable to the point where it can be traumatic for people to even go in and access care. And so they may not even go and access abortion care um, when they need it. And so on top of that, when there are programs that help pay for abortion services, if they are um, using language that, you know, they are only for people who identify as women, that leaves out the whole non-binary gender expansive community as well. And so when we think about losing access to abortion because of severe restrictions, that's already in addition to some of the other barriers that we have accessing healthcare. Yeah, thank you for all that. That's one of the things I've seen continuously just throughout healthcare in general. And I feel like it's even more directly affected when talking about reproductive health since there is just a big stigma around reproductive health in general. How can we make abortion more accessible in LGBTQ plus and BIPOC communities? I'll open this question up to either of you two. It's really a matter of making it more accessible. A lot of the different policies that have been trying to be passed in Texas and other places trying to limit abortion aren't necessarily making it strictly illegal, but mainly the game has been trying to make it less and less accessible for more and more people until it is practically uh, impossible to get. Um, so to answer it simply by making it more accessible to everyone, you would make it more accessible to members of the LGBTQ plus community and the BIPOC community. A big thing is with especially, maybe not necessarily uh, with any, any one group, but with minorities and especially those who are maybe struggling a little bit more economically, hours can be a big thing. If people are working many jobs or don't have a lot of free time, oftentimes, very limited hours can make a big difference. And that flexibility really only comes when the abortion centers have 
support behind them. They have enough staff to really manage things. They have enough funding to get their message out there so that people know where they can get abortions and where they can get safe uh, healthcare. So mainly by supporting the abortion clinics and making it more accessible to people, it can really start to not just be for people who know about it, who are educated, who can afford it, and who can actually, you know, get there and have the free time to have that all set up. So the healthcare system is tricky to say the least and anything we can do to sort of simplify that and make it easier for people who may not have as much time would definitely help, I think. Liliana, do you have anything else to say about that? Yeah, so adding to the things that Raymond was already mentioning, really destigmatizing abortion for all people is a way to make abortion more accessible um, in these communities. Changing the language. So, uh, like I mentioned earlier, words matter um, when referring to abortion care, abortion services, talking about people who can become pregnant, pregnant people versus women um, who are seeking abortions or women who can become pregnant, because that also leaves out folks who might identify as women, but not necessarily be in the same position and so may have lost their ability to become pregnant. And so it, it kind of is isolating for people when they focus solely on the feminization of pregnancy and parenting. As far as Black, Indigenous, and communities of color, having information available in languages that are spoken within those communities so that people do have an awareness around where these services are available, uh, what these services are, informed consent is important. And if folks don't have information in their language, it's not true informed consent. And that can be really scary, particularly around the history of sexual and reproductive oppression. Another thing too is really acknowledging that abortion has been around since the beginning of time. This is not a new concept. In Black, Indigenous, and communities of color, abortions were practiced. And many of the times the conversation was someone needed or wanted to have their period return because they weren't having a period. So that might have been the early conversation of um, having an abortion, but not necessarily using that terminology. And so again, with language and words mattering, reflecting the words and the terms that people use within their community to really identify what those needs are, what people are asking for, and also respectful of their culture. One big thing that I see happening within these communities that I want you to expand a little bit more on is what can happen to folks when they don't have access to safe abortions. Absolutely. So as Liliana was talking about before, abortions have existed since forever. There are a few things like that where making it illegal or making it harder to access doesn't make it happen less. It just makes it more dangerous for the person trying to do it. I can provide other examples, pornography, is one of them that making it illegal doesn't really do anything but make it more dangerous for the people working in the industry. Same thing with um, prostitution. But talking specifically about abortion, 
what the situation really requires is a little bit of empathy or sympathy at the very least and understanding, you know, putting yourself in that person's shoes. If you're in the situation where you're wanting to terminate a pregnancy, generally it's a desperate decision because you feel as though you are unable to support that person or you are unwilling to support that person. And if that's the case, what it does is it just makes it more dangerous. It makes people take desperate measures and it it's just harmful to the people who need the services and to our society as a whole. Parenting can be really hard and generally, especially if you are poor, if you are the type of people who really get affected by the limitations placed on abortions, the type of people who don't have access to those sort of things are also the type of people who don't have access to lots of other healthcare services and lots of other services. And so by depriving of that, you're just increasing the risks that they have to take by so much. And there are quite a few studies that show that making abortion illegal does not decrease the abortion rates at all. Decreases in abortion rates come from educating people from a larger middle class or smaller lower class, raising people out of poverty and making sure they have opportunities to access healthcare services, to access birth control and other forms of protection. That's what decreases abortion rates because it gives people the choice and it gives people the knowledge to stop that situation from happening in the first place. All that abortion, banning abortion does without solving any of those other problems is it's ignoring the real problem and simply punishing people for experiencing one of the symptoms. Yeah, access to safe birth control and just knowing your options when it comes to birth control is also really important. And that's really the only way that we are going to be able to decrease abortion rates here in the United States. Talking about just like abortion restrictions, could you please talk a little bit about what's happening in Texas right now? So what's going on in Texas is actually something that has been going on for many years, I want to say for at least the last decade. And this is part of what are considered trap laws or targeted regulation or restriction on abortion providers. And so this is a restriction on people accessing abortion care at six weeks. And the interesting thing about this particular law is that historically, when states enact these laws, they see a lot of lawsuits against them because it is attacking a person's right to make a decision, their privacy to make a personal decision about their body and their health care. And what this law in Texas does is it shifts that legality to not on the state as an entity, but on an individual. And so like any person, even if it's a stranger, can report someone for having an abortion and anyone who helped that person access that abortion. So a cab driver, an Uber or Lyft driver giving someone a ride to an appointment, the provider who is performing the abortion or providing the abortion pill, any friends that are giving a person information on how to access an abortion can be the target of 
lawsuits um, and anyone in the state can can report them. And so they've found this loophole to try to um, restrict people's access to abortion by turning everyday people against each other, turning neighbors on each other to report on their access to, you know, a legal right around their body. And so I wanted to also say a couple of things about when we lose access to um, safe abortions um, and some of the things that are happening in Texas now and that have happened historically in states where abortion has been restricted is that people seek ways to access abortion in ways that aren't the safest. I know that I mentioned earlier that there have been indigenous and cultural practices around abortions in the past um, using herbs and medicines and, and things like that, but those were not things that just happened. People were just plucking herbs from the earth. It was people who were aware of medicines and people who were very experienced and had a lineage of family history, researching and knowing what types of herbs and plants. But in modern day, that kind of wisdom and knowledge is not as deep and maybe not as accessible as it had been in the past because of other restrictions of people and this goes into another tangent, but I'm not going to go there right now, but pretty much the oppression of culture and history of communities of color and indigenous communities. But when folks read about different things that might help them with doing their own abortion, it can lead to lots of dangerous situations where people you know, will experience poisoning or unsanitary conditions where folks will be using instruments that aren't designed for abortions and have infections and things like that that can happen. And then also people will be able to travel out of the state to find, you know, somewhere else where they can obtain an abortion where it is legal in that community. But that means that people are um, needing to find money to do that. They're needing to find transportation to do that. They're needing to find support to be able to do that. And it takes a lot of time. And the longer that it takes for somebody to be able to get all of those things lined up, the further along they might be progressing in their pregnancy. And if it hits a certain point, they may no longer be able to have an abortion because you know, wherever it is that they're seeking an abortion, they might be beyond the number of weeks where they can get it. Um, so there's a lot of things that can happen when people don't have access to safe abortions. And like Raymond mentioned, if somebody is needing and wanting to access a service, you know, they will take themselves to any lengths to obtain that, um, even if it is dangerous. One quick question I have that you touched a little bit into um, was the cost of an abortion. Would you mind speaking a little bit more on that? Yeah, so that can really vary, and there are a lot of things that can go into that. With the way that the healthcare system works in America, it's really dependent on the insurance you have, but most abortion clinics will try their best to make it affordable as possible. In Oregon especially, we have a lot of really good laws that are supporting it and can make it pretty affordable. Insurance is a big thing. Another thing is the time cost and the cost of you know, transportation. Depending on where you live, you might not have a abortion clinic for a very long distance. So you need to find 
the time to get actually to the location. And if you don't have a car, then that becomes even more of an issue, depending on if you can even ask someone for a ride. So there are a lot of different things to consider. I'd say that's definitely one thing that it varies a lot based on insurance and which abortion clinic you're going to, but I couldn't give any specific number. I haven't been able to find any specific numbers either just because the way it works, but Liliana, you've worked for Planned Parenthood. Do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, and what Raymond was saying was just really spot on that it really depends on what a person needs to obtain the abortion. Um, as far as costs at a health center, specifically, the abortion pill could be about $400 just for the medication and the visit to the provider and the preliminary and follow-up appointments. And then the procedure could also be up to 750 or more into the thousands of dollars, really depending on where somebody goes for abortion services and some of the things that they might need. So like if they are getting anesthesia, so if they're asleep during the procedure, that's a cost that is included in the services in addition to like appointment to have ultrasounds and things like that to properly date the pregnancy and how far along they are. And then again, like uh, Raymond had mentioned, where somebody is coming from. So if they are needing childcare costs, hotel costs, gas, all of those different things also add to those abortion costs. But as far as the procedures in the health centers, yes, there are a variety of funding programs to help with those costs. And those programs may also offer some support for additional costs for traveling to access abortion care. Thanks so much for talking a little bit about the accessibility of abortion. I know that's just one big barrier, just like one of the many barriers is the cost for many people. And that's definitely a big thing. One more question I have for you two before we wrap up is what do you know about the history of white supremacy and the pro-life movement? That history is longer than the history of the US in a few ways. So it's very complicated. One thing I wanted to say to preface before we really get into it, especially regarding pro-life or anti-choice or whatever you call it, is in America right now, you aren't held legally responsible for putting your own life at risk to try to save the life of another. You know, you can sign to be an organ donor and you can sign to save someone, but if someone is, you know, has fallen down onto train tracks and you feel like you might be at some risk trying to help them up, you don't have to help them up. And if they get hurt or if they die, you can't be held legally responsible for them. And so it's an interesting thing where something as easy as just reaching a hand out and pulling someone up, that's all the inconvenience it would be to you. It's fine. You don't even have to inconvenience yourself to save someone or vice versa. You don't have to inconvenience yourself and let someone die. But the fact that people are saying, well, you have to go through the risks of having pregnancy and then following through with the birth and all the procedures that 
and then either go through the process of putting someone up for adoption or actually raising a child and all the costs that come with that. That is, that's acceptable, but the other thing isn't. So I, I just, I realized that and I wanted to point it out because I find that really inconsistent <laughs> with a lot of people and with the argument as a whole, but that's sort of tangential. About the history of white supremacy and the pro-life movement or anti-choice movement, as I like to call it. I mean, white supremacy has been a thing since Manifest Destiny, since before that colonization, that's really, it's a mindset of us versus them. And when it's a bunch of people coming from the same area that have lived there for the same time in Europe, it's by no means good, but it's sort of, that's where it comes from. But once you start, you know, this is a colonized territory. Most of the people living here are not the original inhabitants of this land. And there have been many different fake pseudoscientific explanations, many different, there's always some sort of explanation. No one thinks something for no reason, but there are examples of it throughout American history of white supremacy. It's a means of making sure that those in power stay in power and those without power, you know, stay without power. And one of the easiest things to do that with is something that's visible and obvious like race. As for the history of the pro-life movement, I know it definitely has some religious roots and there's a lot of history involved with eugenics, but I don't know if you want to talk more on that, Liliana. Thanks, Raymond. Yeah, so early on when the legalization or the criminalization, because before the laws started being put in place to criminalize abortion, abortion was happening, whether or not people were talking about it. But one of the reasons why the early leaders of the anti-choice movement Raymond was mentioning was that because there were communities of color that were immigrating alongside those that existed here since time immemorial were growing, those communities were growing in number, they did not want to see white Protestant women having abortions. And so because they wanted to maintain the numbers of the white race, they wanted to criminalize abortion so that they could ensure that the populations of white communities would continue to grow and would not be accessing abortion. And so that was one of the early reasonings around criminalizing abortion. And we still see and hear some of those kinds of rhetoric in some of the conversations today in this us versus them kind of mentality. Um, and then when we think about some of the pro-life or anti-choice strategies, paternalism is a aspect of white supremacy culture of a group of folks, a race of folks thinking that they know better than original communities. And they um, ended up saying that people don't know how to make these decisions on their own. So they have to restrict the decisions that people are making. Um, and so that also includes access to abortion, access to birth control, access to sexuality, education, all of those different things that are severely limited by this white supremacy thinking and culture. Um, and then also the stripping of those indigenous practices and saying that they're primitive 
when in actuality indigenous communities here had irrigation, had sewage, had um, medicine. And so white supremacy culture has really had a lot of harm in more than just people's access to overall well-being and healthcare for a long time. Thank you for all of that. I definitely think that's a great point. Thank you guys for joining me tonight, but we're going to have to wrap it up. Thank you for listening to today's episode on abortion rights here in the United States. Make sure to subscribe from wherever you get your podcast and to follow us on Instagram at the underscore all in my head podcasts to stay up to date with future episodes. Thank you. This podcast was created using a grant from the Oregon Alliance to Prevent Suicide in partnership with the Association of Oregon Community Mental Health Programs and with funding from the Oregon Health Authority. The adult advisor is Nicole Mayer, music by Waterboy, shared on Pixabay.